Everyone, wow, what an exciting group here tonight. Thanksgiving must be uh, in your conversations, I'm sure, with everything that's going on and uh, the week ahead. So I hope you've had a great day, a beautiful day to be outside today, and a beautiful weekend for sure. So glad you're here this evening. And I know some of you are here because we're covering a, a special topic. I'm sitting here watching my computer blink, so I'm hoping the technology will be our friend tonight. Uh, we'll find out something here in a minute. There we go, maybe so. So tonight we're going to look at the Arab-Israeli conflict from a biblical perspective and bring some elements into our thinking about that. Uh, would you agree with me? This is a topic a lot of people are talking about. Amen. Yeah. I was, I was having uh, lunch this week and um, I, I stopped and got some lunch at a local restaurant somewhere on the other side of town. And a couple tables over, I was hearing a guy saying, now Abraham had two sons. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, people are talking about this for sure. And um, so it's good for us to have a biblical perspective to it. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it does help us to better understand some of the, some of the uh, issues that go with it. I'm hoping my computer's not going to go crazy or it's, it's flashing on me. Y'all can't see it, but we'll hope it hangs on. So uh, tonight that's our topic, and we want to um, um, use this then as a jumping off point because next week, basically what we're going to do tonight is go through the biblical issues related to and there's four main ones i'm going to bring to our attention and then next week we'll look at the historical issues related to the arab israeli conflict historical going all the way back to the end of the end of the new testament or even really the end of the old testament i suppose which is where we'll stop tonight and we'll look at some of the history in particularly the history of the 1900s late 1800s and 1900s that kind of got us to where we are today and um so I have looked around, and probably you have too, uh, through media sources, uh, the internet, of course, and I just am finding lots of confusion and what I think are bad perspectives on a lot of what's happening. It's too short-sighted. Um, they're, not, they're not looking at all the details that go with it, so from a biblical perspective particularly. I've heard a, a couple, I'm glad to hear, a couple of pastors and some of the things they've expounded I thought was right on target. Wasn't necessarily deep or interconnected, but at least it certainly pointed everybody in a good direction. So we at least want to do that, I trust, in this time tonight. So this week and next week, that's our topic. And I uh, hope you'll come back and join us for part two next week. Well, let's pray, and we'll see if my computer blows up or not. All right. Father, thank you for the day you've blessed us with. What a beautiful day and a beautiful weekend to enjoy. We're grateful for the opportunity and the privilege of being in your house. What a wonderful service this morning and a great reminder of of, uh, of your word, our pastor's taking us through, pointing us to, to be reminded of how important the word is. And in, in issues like this, current issues, worldwide issues, there's a biblical perspective. And I pray that you will help us to, to see clearly how the Bible portrays these issues and how we can begin to lay a biblical foundation, even for our understanding of it. Uh, so we gather tonight with great uh, rejoicing in our hearts, and uh, we pray that you'll bless not only our time here, but other Bible groups that are meeting this hour. And, Bless the children, all the things they're involved in, and I pray that it just be a great evening for your glory. Help us as we prepare for a week of Thanksgiving, and truly to each day be thankful and be reminded of your goodness to us. And uh, may you be honored as we go through this week by individuals and families and all that's before us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Remind you of a couple of prayer requests and some announcements as we finish too tonight. Well, where do you want to start with this? Where we, which book of the Bible would you guess we want to start with? Genesis, Absolutely. So much goes back to Genesis. So let's, let's start there. We won't start at chapter 1. Let's wait a few chapters. We'll start at chapter 6 because really, it, in many ways, it impacts um, our understanding to look at Noah. And that's where we want to start with this. So we're going to begin with Noah. Now, Noah, of course, is a familiar name to us. He is uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 in the book of Genesis. And that's the account of the flood, the worldwide flood. And all that goes with it. But what's important about Noah is not just the account of the flood, as we'll talk about it here, uh, but remember his three sons. Um, let's see, that would be Adam, Hoss, and little Joe. No, 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 different three sons. Um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember those names for the, for the most part. Um, and of those three, you can really trace human history. All of us tonight are descendants of one of those three sons. And I can glance around and say, it looks like we're all descendants of Japheth. If you didn't know that, now you do. You're, we are all descendants of Japheth. Um, 
uh, whose descendants would occupy Europe and Russia, went north from Mount Ararat in that region of the Middle East. One of those sons, the, the son Shem, will be the son who will primarily stay in the region of the Middle East and um, we might even say the Saudi Peninsula in that area. You might even take a little bit of North Africa with that. Uh, the lines are somewhat blurry, but um, the Shemites would be the occupants of the Middle East. It helps us to understand a, a few simple questions that people often encounter when they talk about the book of Genesis and human history. Um, what skin color were Adam and Eve? What was the skin color of Noah and his family? Well, the answer that's pretty simple. It's Middle Eastern skin color uh, because that's, that's a lineage that, and, and where the creation of humanity took place at. When Adam and Eve were created, they were there in the Middle East area and, uh, and descended from them, Noah and his family. They were, they were as we would call today, Middle Easterners. And um, the Shemites would be a group that we can trace not only from the Middle East, but they also begin to move east. The Shemite line of human history would run through uh, not only the Middle East, or as you think about a map in your world, moving left to right. Uh, they would move into the regions of China and um, South China, or South Asia rather, and eventually up to become, as they go across the land bridge of of um, Russia to Alaska, they would become the Eskimos eventually, and their descendants would work their way down into the continent of what we know as North American, making them the uh, Native American Indians. They're all Shemites. Um, I got a real exposure to that when I was in China, teaching in China. And, and my, some of the students there, you could just... If you've been to Cherokee or in that part of North Carolina, I just felt like you could pick those people up and set them in Cherokee, North Carolina, and they would blend right in. There's just so much similarity in the physical structure of the people in, in um, the Asian world to those who are in the Native American category. Those were all descendants of Shem. Now, if you follow the genealogies of chapter 10, particularly the genealogies of Noah's sons, you will follow eight generations from Shem. Noah had three sons, but he had 16 grandsons that are mentioned by name. And those generations are followed so that eight generations afterwards, we come to a man named Abram. As we're first introduced to him in Genesis chapter 10, he's mentioned there in the genealogies. Um, and then we really catch up with him, the details starting in Genesis chapter 12. And we follow his life, and there's much to say about the life of Abram, and we'll, we'll spend a little time with him tonight, but we're going to um, have to spend some time talking about the descendants of Abram, or as we will call him, Abraham. The scripture will, will tell us about how God changes his name. And so Abraham's an important name in human history. He is certainly recognized and revered, uh, not only by the, the scriptures in relation to the Christians, but also to the Jews, of course. They would trace their lineage to him through his sons. And then also there's a connection to the Arab nations through Abraham. A term, two terms that we'll, divide, we'll dive into a little more are the terms Arab and Muslim. Those are not synonyms. There are, there are lots of Arabs who are not Muslim. They don't follow the Muslim faith. So one of, the, one of the misconceptions often find people have is they think Arabs and Muslims are the same term. They're not. Arab is a nationality distinction. From basically, we'll talk about what is an Arab a little bit later, but Arab is a nationality distinction of people groups. Muslim is a religious distinction of those who follow Islam. And in Current world population today, you'll typically see the number that there are about 10 to 15 million Arab Christians. So you can't always think of Arabs as being Muslim. There's a huge number of them that are Christians. So distinguish in your mind, if you haven't already, Arab and Muslim are not the same thing. We're going to talk about those. We'll talk about Arab this time and Muslim next time. Uh, but they all trace 
the Arab nations, the Arab people group, the lineage of the Jews, of course, and then, of course, the reverence that we would offer Abraham as a man of the Bible that we would study and learn and glean much from. Uh, he does good things. He does bad things, you know, in a human perspective. He sounds an awful lot like one of us, doesn't he? Well, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, about Abram. And I'm, we're going to particularly highlight three points. Let's start with this one. Abram, I'm going to say the calling. Again, I'm just going to remind you of some Bible passages. And I'll put some verses up, and we'll, we'll look at it from that perspective. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, tells us of God's calling upon Abram. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. What was thy country? He was from the city of Ur. And from thy kindred, or from your family, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. This is God's call upon Abram's life. Abraham is called Ur from Ur of the Chaldees. If you were to put that on a modern-day map, it is southern Iraq. That, that sort of makes people think for a moment, too. Abram was what we call or consider today an Iraqi by his national birth. God said, I will take you from here and to a place that I will show you. If you, you know, a lot of maps have some re reference to this travel. Uh, Ur down the bottom right, and you can follow the blue line to Babylon, or what we call today Baghdad, uh, then up to uh, Haran, and uh, some life changes happened there. I won't go into that detail here, but you can read it in um, uh, chapter 13, chapter 12, chapter 12, into chapter 12. And then he comes down to the promised land. Basically what God is doing is leading him around the desert. One reason I like this map is all the brown part there is a desert. And you don't want to exactly make that traverse through the desert with much success. So God led him through the traditional uh, roadways of the day, uh, the trade routes that would take him up and down those, uh, those areas. If you, if you remember the story of Abram in much detail, you know that there's, he winds up going to Egypt. And then from Egypt will come back to, to the uh, promised land, as we would call. At this point, it is typically a name that is used as the name Canaan. Let me pause there for just a minute. Remember those 16 grandsons I mentioned of Noah? One of those grandsons is named Canaan. Canaan is a grandson, or a son, rather, of Ham. And his descendants will populate what we will call, the Scripture will call, the Promised Land. Um, Canaan land is not a, really a distinction. It's funny how we as American Christians have sort of sugar-coated Canaan land to be a place we want to go. I'm on my way to Canaan land, right? We have those songs. Um, to Canaan land, I'm on my way. You know, we, we, we sort of sugarcoated Canaan land. Canaan land was a pagan land. The Canaanites were ungodly pagans. They worshiped their idols, and what was the call of Joshua when they went into the land of Canaan? To wipe out the Canaanites and their idol worship with them so that this land could be dedicated to the service of God for his people. But uh, uh, for a, quite a while in the scripture, this will be called the, the land of Canaan. That's where it gets its name from, is uh, the grandson of Noah. So that's where Abraham will, will, will find himself as God settles him in. And so we see the calling. That's a big part of, obviously, his story, to up and move and go, and I will show you. Now, with that movement, there's also a covenant that is established. The Abrahamic covenant, described for us in Genesis 15, um, this is God, the first he there, the, the pronouns you have to stop and, and sort of process. And he, God, brought him, Abram, forth abroad and said, look now toward the heaven. This must have been a, a crystal, crystal clear night. Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars if, there be, if, if thou be able to number them, which obviously you can't. And he said unto him, so shall, be that shall thy seed be, or your descendants be. And he, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted, he, God, counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. This, this might be the, the moment of testimony where Abram says, God, I'll put my complete trust and faith in you, and I'll put my future in your hands. There's a lot of things about Abram we have to like, and that's certainly a good one. The account of the covenant goes on, though, in verse 7, and says, And he, 
God said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So that's part of the covenant, the promise of descendants and the promise of land. Now, I, I didn't want to bog down too many details, but there's actually a description of the land from the boundary of the, of the river of Egypt, which would be like the Nile, we'd call it, all the way to the great river Euphrates, which would be over in Iraq. It's actually a lot more land than Israel is today, for sure. And uh, that's part of the covenant. So there's a covenant that has two parts to it. God says, I will give you descendants that will outnumber the stars and the sands of the seas, uh, the sand of the shore, rather, is another comparison used later. And then I will give you this land for your inheritance. Now, along with that covenant, at the very end of chapter 15, there are these verses. This land the scripture says, already has inhabitants. It's not like he was going into a wilderness territory where no one had ever been. He was, going into, he was promised a land that already had inhabitants. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant. Again, this is the end of chapter 15, with Abram saying unto thy seed, have I given this land? I think it's important there to notice the verb tense. Unto thy seed, I have, we, we might would say it to better emphasize it, I have already given this land. God didn't say unto your seed, I will give this land. It was already in God's plan that this land was to be designated for the use of the Jews, his people. Anyway, unto thy seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates, which is in modern day Iraq. And the scripture will make note of 10 different nationalities, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, probably the, the largest, most powerful of those, of all these nations, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, right? My joke to that is they got everybody but the termites in that list. The, so there's the entire list of 10 people groups that are identified as already being inhabitants of this promised land. That's where the chapter ends, chapter 15 ends. And I'm sure, probably somewhat to the surprise of Abraham, okay, you're asking me all by myself to somehow go claim this land? Well, the storyline the story of the covenant ends there as far as what happens. It's a very interesting chapter. The covenant, by the way, isn't just a promise. God institutes there in chapter 15 a blood covenant. If you go back and read that chapter, you will see where God had Abraham gather animals, and the animals were, uh, were slaughtered and cut in half, and each half was laid on a side. It's like a path. And then God's presence in the, in the, God's presence in the imagery of a burning, um, a burning cauldron or a burning pot passes through that path of the animals that have been slaughtered and laid on either side. It's a blood covenant. The blood covenant meant this covenant is sealed in blood and it will be completed in blood. Now, now we can read that and look forward to the cross in Christ and see a fulfillment, a beginning of a shadow, a foreshadow, the blood of Christ. But the covenant was established at that time for the purpose of securing before Abraham that God was going to complete this covenant. So it's more than just words. There really was an action that was done by both parties to seal this covenant. But again, go read that in your own time. It's an interesting passage to read for sure. Now, we fast forward a little bit. We know that God has made a promise that Abram would father a great nation of people. But at this point, he has no child. Except his adopted son, my term, not the scripture's term, his adopted son, Lot. Now remember, Lot is his nephew. So let me kind of read between the lines a little bit and explain, I think, a relationship that we don't easily see in the wording of the scriptures. Lot was Abram's brother's son, but his brother dies. And what does Lot do? He takes his nephew under his wing. He becomes like a son to him. We all know family stories of, of similar gist. He becomes like a son to Abram, who has no son. 
and he, 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 he treats him like a son. He makes him a bit of a, a, a joint heir like a son. Remember some of the accounts that Lot was given first choice. You choose the plane where you want to set up your, you get to choose Lot. I'll give you first choice. That's what a dad does for his son. There's a really great relationship there between those two that if you catch a glimpse of it every once in a while in the reading of the text, you'll see that Lot was considered the son of Abram. God had made this promise, though, that no, it will not be your nephew to be the one who will be the promised son. You will actually, a son will come from your loins. It will be of you. But Abraham, just like us, got impatient, right? We know some of that story. They waited and waited, they being he and his wife Sarah, waited and waited and waited. And in the process, thought God had forgotten about them, evidently. Boy, you know, it just sounds like us, doesn't it? And so Sarah schemes a plan that, well, Abram, God has said that the, the, your, our child would come from you, but not from us. I can just, again, I'm reading between the lines. Don't look for this in Scripture. I'm just reading between the lines. Maybe God intends you to father a child, but look how old I am. I can't father a child, she would say. How foolish a thought. So in his travels to Egypt, that he had done before, evidently, they took on an Egyptian they hired, or purchased is probably a better term, an Egyptian slave to be an assistant for his wife. So Sarah offers her slave girl to be the mother of the child to, to Abram. Her name, of course, Hagar. And I'm sure that must have been an interesting set of conversations, because I'm sure it wasn't one conversation. And they tried to scheme their way into God's will, right? And, and that just never works. We all know the reality of that. You just, you just can't scheme your way into God's will. And they tried to scheme their way into God's will. They tried to hurry the timeline. They tried to make it something of their own doing. And uh, don't worry about it, God. We, got, we, we took care of it, right? And in the process, we now have a whole storyline that revolves around Abraham, the slave girl Hagar, and the son that will be born from that union, Ishmael. So let's look at what, many of us have heard the name Ishmael. Let's look at what the scripture says about, about this child, even before he is born. You'll hear some interesting wording that sounds somewhat familiar. In Genesis 16 is this account. The angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, this is speaking of Hagar, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shall call his name uh, Ishmael, we want to say Jesus almost because we hear the angels speak the same similar words to Mary many, many, uh, many uh, centuries later. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard thy affliction. There's an interesting perspective to Hagar for sure. Again, we'll, we won't bog down there, but there's been a prophecy already made before this child is born. It will be a male, number one. His name will be Ishmael. And God is with you in this process. Remember, Hagar is very much a victim in so many ways. She had no decision in this, no choice. She may have only been a teenager herself. Um, and when she, was, when she was purchased off the Egyptian slave block, she may have been just a, a young girl, eight or nine or ten years old. And this is several years later. Again, you have to read between the lines to try to fill in some identity to some of those details, but you also don't have to read too far between the lines to at least have sympathy for Hagar because she gets caught in this trap, so to speak, of, of Abram and Sarah's making. Let's continue the story. There's the prophecy about Ishmael. Let's look what else is told about him. And he will be a wild man. Interesting how those words are translated in some different versions. Um, many of the translations will indicate he will be almost like a wild animal. One translation even uses a word that references to that idea. He will be a wild animal of a man, uncontrollable. And his hand will be against every man, in other words, in conflict, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. In other words, he will, he will live and he will not go far. 
He will live in an area that will be dominated by those of like and kindred um, affections. But it is interesting to see how just of a violent imagery is given to us in those words. Again, this is before he's even born. So there's the prophecy. Now in the, in the process, there's a promise about Ishmael. Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old. Now 86 in those days was not like 86 in our days. Abram, Abraham, will die at age 175. So he's barely at midlife at age 86 when Ishmael is more fathered and born. Okay? And by the way, he will father other children we'll mention here in just a moment too. And now he has a son that is of his loins. And like any son to his father, Ishmael takes prime position. And I'm sure there were plenty of days when Abram held Ishmael, and he carried him, and he teeter-tottered along with him as he learned to walk, and he taught him how to do things. It was the only son he had. Lot by now is out of the equation, for the most part, for sure. And so now his affections are turned to Ishmael. God comes back to visit Abram and affirm to him, no, this is not the son. Your son will be a son of promise, a miracle son, to use a term. And Ishmael is still on Abram's heart. So Abraham goes to God, and here are his words recorded for us in chapter 17. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God, what's, why not? He is my son. I love him. I'm very, very willing to offer him to be the son of promise. He makes a plea before the Lord. But God says no. And on top of that, he speaks to Abram about Ishmael and the promise for his future. Ishmael, the Lord says, as for him, I have heard thee. I've heard your request. And behold, Abraham, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget. He'll have twelve sons. And I will make of him a great nation of people, if you want to sort of put it in more modern-day terms. So there was a promise that God gave about Ishmael as a son of Abraham, that he would bless him and that he would also be the father of a great nation of people. And so what follows from that promise are the generations of Ishmael that have already been talked about in the promise. Twelve princes shall he begat. We read further into the scripture, and we will find in 1 Chronicles the passage that tells us their exact names. I'll let you read them, rather than me stumble through them. These are their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael. And he goes on to list the twelve sons of Ishmael listed in the Bible. Now, those sons, of course, will go on to have their sons and their families, and the whole thing just explodes, right? We know how human population does. And so that's really the last occurrence of a reference to Ishmael and his descendants directly by name. So we've got the call to Abraham. That's a big part. We've got the covenant of Abraham with Abraham. That's a big part. The third part of as regard to Abraham is the conflict. When Isaac is born, when the son of promise is born, Abram is 100 years old. Which means, again, do some simple math, means Ishmael is 14 years old. Now, what has Ishmael known for 14 years of his life, all 14 years of his life? He is known being the primary center of attention for his father, Abraham. He sat at the table beside him. He was out with him during the day. He was learning at his father's knee all the things he needed to know. He was the center of attention. But now a new cry is heard in the village or in the tents of Abraham. And that new cry is of the promised child, Isaac, that indeed is a miracle child born to Sarah in her old age. She was a mere 90 when she had Isaac. 
Ladies, don't think on that too long. You don't have to worry about it. And, um, and the passage of Scripture that catches our attention regarding the conflict is first given to us in Genesis 21, where the Scripture says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who is that Ishmael, which she had born unto Abraham. She, Hagar, had born unto Abraham. And what was he doing? Mocking. Mocking this baby. Maybe even mocking Sarah. We don't know what that meant, you know, or what he was doing, but it aggravated Sarah. So she says unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. Kick them out. For the son of this bondwoman, I find it interesting, she will not even use the name of either one of them. The son of this bondwoman, Ishmael, shall not be heir with my son. He has no claim to being an heir. This is the child of promise. Not with Isaac, he does not. And now Abraham finds himself caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place for sure. The thing was very grievous, the scripture says, in Abraham's sight because of his son. Because of his son Ishmael or his son Isaac. It's really kind of hard to pinpoint which one, but we know that there's a conflict there that's within his own heart. His wife is telling me, or his wife is telling him rather, she, that Ishmael and his mother have to go. So Abraham does the hard thing eventually. Scripture will tell us he will pack food and water for them. He will place it on Hagar's shoulder. She takes her 14-year-old son, and she herself may be only 30, 35 at the most, maybe, at this time. Takes her 14-year-old son, and they are appointed to the desert. Where do they go? They go toward the only place she had ever known as home before Abraham, Egypt. But it's the desert, and they're all alone. They're defenseless. Eventually, the food and water runs out. I'll let you go read the account. I, I didn't want to bog down with it here. But God miraculously provides for them and provides for their safety, and they eventually arrive back in Egypt. The storyline really cuts off in the Scripture for us with Hagar in the desert and the Lord providing for her and protecting her and the child. It's a very emotional, almost a heart-wrenching account to read when you put yourself in the, the thoughts of Hagar. They're both about to die. The, part, the parched son is, is killing both of them. And she takes her son and puts him over here, and she goes over here because the Scripture says she, she didn't want to watch her son die. I mean, you, it just grabs your heart, doesn't it? She knows they're going to die. Whatever else, she's not going to hold her son while he dies. But God miraculously provides for them, and they are safely able to get through that process. We don't know all the details beyond that, but we do know that they do get beyond the process and return to Egypt. Let me come back to Hagar and Ishmael later, or Hagar later. We'll talk more about Ishmael. There's a pattern of Ishmael. As he grows, we're told the scripture, God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness. In other words, he liked being outside the camp. He liked going out and to nature, maybe, is what I would say. He became an archer, which implies hunting skills and also military skills. That's the weapon of the day. And um, we're told that as he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, now that doesn't mean much to us, but if you get your Bible map out and look at the Middle East, the wilderness of Paran is, just, is a northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So now that's how we know they wind up back in Egypt. And why wouldn't they? That's where Hagar is from. She had some connections there, maybe even family. She gets back to Egypt with her son Ishmael. And there Ishmael grows up. He takes a wife. And will father these 12 sons. We're told by the time we get to the end of Genesis 25 of Ishmael's death. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 130 and 7 years, and he gave up the ghost to buy boy. So, of course, he died, and he was gathered unto his people. So Ishmael's a very interesting character. You don't see one continuous storyline with him, though. You sort of have to hit and miss different chapters to follow it. But there is a, something of a continuous storyline from birth to death. 
we're just kind of left to fill in the blanks. Not only with him, but also with Hagar. So we'll come back to her in a moment, too. So here's what we can say of Ishmael, and sort of summarizing everything about Ishmael. He is the son of Abraham, so therefore he gets God's blessings in that position through Hagar. Again, born when his father was 86, and he was 14 when Isaac was born. Eventually forced with his mother to leave. Now for a moment, let's try to read between the lines again, because I don't think it's hard to do this. Let's imagine the attitude once they arrive in Egypt, and maybe even on the way. How many times does Ishmael ask his mother, why, mother? Why is our father Abraham kicking us out? Why is he turning his back on us? I thought he, I mean, can you imagine that conversation? And Hagar, in her own frustration, in her own anger, all I can tell you is it's, it's because of Isaac. Life was good for us before Isaac was born. It's Isaac. I tell you, that's, that's the only conclusion I can believe she can come to. Abraham had shown them love and compassion. But boy, when Isaac came on the scene, everything changed, even to the point of a near death. So I think there's a, there's a human side of this story we can't ignore, because I think it helps us see better and understand the issues. So when they arrive in Egypt, what has Ishmael heard, and what will he continue to hear in Egypt? Isaac, Isaac, Isaac. Here's the reason why we are here. Here's the reason why we were abandoned by your father. I mean, just year after year. And that must have built up that anger and animosity and much between them. By the way, the last time, there is one more time when Ishmael and Isaac will see each other. The scripture is very, very objective on this. It just describes it to us, but I can only imagine what the emotions must have been like. When do Isaac and Ishmael see each other again? It's when they bury their father Abraham. And that's recorded in the scripture too. And I can only imagine, now all these years later, the last time Ishmael saw Isaac, he was a babe in arms. But now he's a man. And we're told they come together to bury their father. It must have been an interesting meeting, don't you think? And he becomes the father of those 12 nations, and many, uh, 12 sons rather, and many succeeding nations from them. Again, we don't have all the genealogies and the people groups and you can connect some dots, but you're left guessing and wondering at best in most, most of the time. There's a pattern, though, of Ishmael we can talk about. The pattern of Ishmael is basically one that needs to be discussed in the terms of the modern-day word Arab. What makes an Arab is a good question. Three or four simple things. There's an ancient heritage tied to the Arab identity. Yes, it could be Ishmael. Not all Arabs are necessarily descendants of Ishmael, but many people would say if, that a vast majority of them are because we're going to see some other areas of this too. That would make them a descendant in the line of Shem or a Shemite or as modern-day English uses the term, Semite. The term Semite originates from the word Shem. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? The son of Noah. So anyone who's descendant of Shem would fit, technically fit that category. What American English has done is we have narrowed that word down to mean primarily a descendant of Isaac, a Jew. So we use the term anti-Semite to say those who oppose the Jews. But the term really has a broader meaning than just the Jews. Another discussion for another time. There is very much a strong Bedouin tradition. If you remember the Bedouins, you, we, we all studied them in fifth grade world history, right? The Bedouins are, are, are a culture of people who travel with herds and flocks. You know, they're the sheep herders and the camel herders and whatever they, they herd. They travel with those flocks through the, through the pastures and through the oasis and to the watering holes. And it's a very mobile life. They don't have a place to call their own. So there's a strong link to the Bedouin traditions. Now, in modern-day world, I'm sure there's lots of people who would say, well, I'm not a Bedouin, but I know from family history my great-great-great-great-grandfather was, right? There's that kind of a tradition and link to the past that's there. It's also a language identity. Arabic is a language that is spoken only primarily by Arabs, so there's always the issue of language that's tied into this. 
But there's also the culture. And again, that's, some of those are just very broad terms. How do you define Arabic culture? You know, it's as different as Morocco is from Saudi Arabia, is from, G, from Egypt, and is from Lebanon and Syria. I mean, there's a, there's a broad range there, but there's a culture. So one of the discussion points on this is how do you define really an Arab? Most who study this topic would at least figure those four things, four or five things in. And uh, you might, you might want to have further discussion. Again, there's plenty of books out there that will take us down to a lot more depth than we've got time for. So here's what we, we try to see. And I know you're looking at the small screen, so let me identify these boxes for you. The top box is Abraham. The origin of many nations is found, if not directly, indirectly through Abraham. Let's start with, um, there's a group of people who would claim lineage through Ishmael. However that lineage would work and be defined, they would certainly be many nations of people who would say, yeah, we are part of that lineage of Ishmael. That's the first box. The second box is another group of people who would claim, who, who if we knew, and they probably don't know, but there's a group of people who would claim lineage from Lot, Abram's nephew. Do you remember the, the tragic story of Lot? He will father two children by his own daughters. Lot will father one child named Moab and another child named uh, Ben-Amani. We know them as the Ammonites. And we read the Old Testament, we come across the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those are descendants of Lot. Again, not the direct, but the indirect bloodline of Abraham. There are those people, of course, who will claim lineage through Isaac, the Jewish nations. Isaac, the father of Jacob, who will give the 12 tribes. And then, believe it or not, Abraham will father other sons. You have to go to Genesis chapter 25, and there you're introduced to a woman named Keturah, Keturah will be a wife of Abraham after Sarah dies. And yes, after a while, it starts to sound like a soap opera. He will father six sons, and they are named in Genesis 25 also. And so there's a lineage of those sons. What happens? As time, as, as, as time through the hourglass, so are the sands of our lives, right? Whatever the... Some of you might remember that. Well, the population of the Middle East grows from all these direct lineage connections to people who are named in the history of the Bible. The Middle East, however, will not only be a place where the residents of those who were born and raised there will occupy, there will also be other nations and other people groups who will come and occupy one of those people groups, there's two of them. The Phoenicians will occupy the northern coastal borders of what we know as Israel. But the Phoenicians who come from Europe, probably in the Aegean Sea area, maybe in Greek, are not a warlike people. They are just explorers. And they come there and they reside for a while, but they come, they're, they're kind of lost in history and really don't have much of an impact in anything biblical or otherwise to the region. So you'll see the Phoenician region identified at the top of the map. At the bottom of the map, there is, there is another people group who come to the coastal shorelines of Israel. They are called the Philistines. They, too, are a group that comes from Europe in that area. So the Philistines, right? Is that a familiar name to you from the Bible? Let's look at a few things about them. Anthropologists, uh, anthropologists tell us that the Philistines originate from north-central Mediterranean Sea, possibly the Aegean coast, which is Greece, or the island of Crete, which is in north-central Mediterranean, they're not real sure, but they know that they were a seagoing people. So they must have, it seems to appeal to, to that to be the best explanation, where the Philistines are. The word, they did not call themselves Philistines, by the way. The Bible does. 
But the word Philistine seems to be a word that means uh, invaders. Not real sure, again, ancient languages. We do know that they were advanced in ironworks, which, which was the best technology of the day. There's even a place in the book of Judges where it's said that the Philistine or the, the Israelite had no blacksmith like the Philistines. Ironworking for Israel was a later developed skill, but the Philistines had that, which meant they had better weapons, they had better chariots, a lot of things. So they were a pretty advanced group. They were a warlike people, though. They came with conquest in mind. I think if I were to compare them to somebody that might make a reference to our thinking, it might be the Vikings. We think of the Vikings as kind of an aggressive, warlike people. We're here to take your land and make you glad we took it, right? Uh, the Philistines sort of give that shadow of a meaning, I think, too, when you, when you research them a bit. They are mentioned in the Old Testament 217 times. Beginning in Genesis, there's even a reference to the Philistines. And they are always referenced as a pagan influence upon Israel. Their idol god was named Dagon, who was a fish god. Another reason they were sea-going sea people. They worshipped a, a deity that was part fish. Uh, and they were, for many generations and centuries, they were enemies of Israel. Remember the Philistines? It's battling with Israel. David battles Goliath, who is a Philistine. It is the Philistine armies that kill King Saul and his sons in battle. It's the Philistines who take the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. The Philistines, through the book of Judges and into 1 Samuel, even to the time of David, are constant enemies with Israel because they're fighting for the land. There's also another part of this we take into account, and that is Israel being taken captive. If you've been here through the Old Testament survey we did, we talked about there's a, there's a place where Israel, the one kingdom of Israel, is subdivides into two kingdoms. There's a civil war of sorts. Ten tribes to the north will retain the name Israel, and the two tribes to the south will use the name Judah. And these two nations, these two kingdoms, both Jews, both have a heritage to Abraham, go down very different paths from the path God intended. Israel to the north will become very much a pagan country. They will turn their back on God, and God will send the prophets to try to call them back, but they don't. And so judgment comes through the, na through the nation of Assyria, and in 722 B.C., from 732 to 722, the Assyrian nation cast a siege on northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, and they take them into captivity. These are the lost ten tribes of Israel. They were dispersed, and the land was occupied by the Assyrians and the Jews. And what do you get from that? Over time, you get a, a group of people identified as Samaritans who were part Jew in their heritage and part Assyrian in their heritage. So that's the northern kingdom. They collapse in 722 to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom will follow a somewhat similar path eventually, and they too will be taken into captivity at God's judgment. And in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar from the then empire of Babylon will invade Israel, raid Jerusalem, and take multitudes into captivity to Babylon. This is in 586, where they will spend 70 years in captivity before they're allowed to come back and the rebuilding of the walls by Nehemiah, Ezra, and, the, um, uh, and, and Zerubbabel becomes the, the sort of the governmental leader of the, of the city of Jerusalem. But they will come back. But they're taken into captivity into Babylon. So now you've got Israel dispersed the term that usually refers to that is called the diaspora, a word that simply means a dispersion. The Jews are kind of here, there, and everywhere. They've lost much of their identity. They've lost their heritage before they come back to start to rebuild. And that's where we're going to pick up next week and start talking about the history of Israel and the conflict, which is already there, right? There's a conflict there between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. 
Now, interesting enough, the captivity by the Assyrians and the captivity by the Babylonians has nothing to do with that conflict. The Arabs who occupy the land are not Jews. They probably found themselves under Babylonian or Assyrian captivity or influence anyway, but at least there's nothing there directly with the conflict. Up until this point, the conflict, you know, is sort of hit and miss. So here's the biblical essentials. Abraham, to understand Abraham, his calling is the covenant and the conflict. To understand the family of Abraham and the populations, the multiple populations of peoples and the lineage that they originate from, either from Lot, Ishmael, Isaac, or the six sons of Keturah, or Keturah, sort of depends on where you want to pronounce it. It's also to understand the Philistines, because that's an outside people group who now occupy the land and are influential in what happens, and the Jewish diaspora, or the Jewish dispersion. So Israel finds itself in all this conflict. You turn century after century, there's all sorts of conflict going on. And that is reflected best to us, not only in the accounts that are recorded for us in Scripture, like the battles with the Philistines, but in the book of Psalms, interesting enough. In the book of Psalms, last thing I will touch base with you on, in the book of Psalms, there are a group of psalms called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory is a word that means a prayer that invokes justice or calamity on the enemies of God, his people, his places, and his purposes. So when you read the book of Psalms, let me give you, you'll almost find different lists. The lists vary a bit depending on the commentators. So let me give you a, a pretty general list I, I constructed from, from more than one source. Either in all of these psalms or in, some of the, or in some parts of these psalms, there are imprecatory prayers, basically saying, God, protect us from our enemies. God, defend us. God, cast your power among our enemies that they may be dispersed and lose their will to fight. I mean, that, those kind of things are not hard to find in the psalms, and here's a whole list of them. I want to focus our attention on just part of one of those, Psalms 83, as we close. Just the first eight verses. There's 18 verses of this psalm. Let's just look at the first eight verses and hear these words. This prayer of the psalmist is, Keep not thy silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. And be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies have made a tumult. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thine hidden ones. They have said, they, the enemies of God, have said, Come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. In other words, they've combined their efforts to confederate against thee. The tab- who are these people? Well, they're named for us in the next three verses. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites. So there, again, centuries later, here's a group of people who are fighting against Israel. They're called Ishmaelites. There's the Moabites. The Hagarenes. Who are the Hagarenes? Again, I'm, I read between the lines. These are the descendants of Hagar. When Hagar returns to Egypt, not only does she find a wife for her son, she finds a husband for herself. She is still a young woman. And she has descendants. And they too will hear of the treachery of this one Isaac and his descendants. Their reference says the Hagarenes have raised up their war, warring mind against Israel. Gebel, Ammon, the, uh, and uh, Amalek, the Philistines are in this group. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped, the King James word there is holpen, but it means helped, the children of Lot. And it ends this section with this. You, you hear an imprecatory prayer? God help us. Enemies of you and enemies of your people and of your purposes are mounting up and we cannot defeat them without your help. Let's identify these groups. Edomites are descendants of Esau, which are never... Uh, which is uh, um, Jacob's brother, which was never very much in his favor either. The Ishmaelites, of course, the Moabites, 
descendant of Lot through one of his daughters, Hagarenes, uh, Gebor, descendants of Esau, another group of descendants, the Ammonites also of Lot's, the Amalek, the Amalekites, the Philistines, and Asher, the Assyrians. Again, the names change, but boy, it sort of sounds like a familiar context, doesn't it? They're just looking to say, how can we wipe Israel off the map? How can we eliminate them as a nation? The mindset like that is not just something that's been around since 1948 or for the past 100 or 150 years, depending on who you read. That mindset goes back to 1,000 years before Christ, that there were people groups in the Middle East who were looking to exterminate the Israelites. Oh, sure. It is. Right. Right. No, you're fine. And Brother Ray uses, I think, an important term, endemic hatred. This is not just a family feud, right? I mean, this is something that is, that is not only built in, but it is, is even intensified. And that's why next week we've got to look at, we've got to intensify this. If you think this is bad, wait till we turn the page of about 500 years and we add Islam to the mix. And that's what we'll do next week as we start to look at the historical site because now we've we finished the biblical portion of this. Let's, let's finish the, the pathway by taking it from the conclusion of the Old Testament in this sequence, and that is the book of Ezra, Nehemiah and Ezra. And then let's pick it up from there and look at what happens to the Middle East from that point forward, particularly working our way to the 19, I mean, to the 1800s and the early 1900s and the influence of World War I and what that has on it. So we'll fill that in next week. So it's hard for us. I agree, Brother Ray. There's, there, are, there almost aren't words to describe. And it's a hatred beyond anything I think we're, we're even capable of understanding in so many ways. So, um, you know, we're, uh, those imprecatory prayers give us a little, I think, insight to the, to the struggle that is not only there now, but it has been there for centuries in Israel. And uh, the story of the Jews is certainly one of violence and hatred in, almost in every location, not just the Middle East. We all, of course, know what happened to them in Europe and um, so many other places. Well, before we close, right at 7 o'clock here, and thank you for your patience. It's a big topic, and there's some good resources out there, but... Uh, but again, you know, find them carefully and, and uh, read, uh, read uh, judiciously so that you can discern uh, what's really good insight to this. Um, we have some folks on our prayer list to pray for, some who've had operations. Uh, we even heard some folks today who are at the emergency room, and we want to just lift names up and, and folks up and our thoughts and prayers come back Wednesday, well, uh, uh, Tuesday. By the way, don't forget, our midweek service is Tuesday this week. And uh, so Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And if you have a wonderful Thanksgiving week with family, I know lots of plans and, and good things ahead. Enjoy all those and give the Lord's blessings. Enjoy the Lord's blessings and give him thanks for them, right? Well, let's close in prayer as we finish then. Father, thank you for our time this evening. Thank you for your word. It gives us accurate insight to things that to us seem so foreign, not just in time or in geography, but foreign to thinking, our thinking. And I pray that you will help us to, to glean some insights from your truth, to help us to see some of the history of the conflict uh, that has been building all these many generations and, and, and even millennia. And I pray that you will uh, allow us to have uh, intelligent and biblical insight to these issues. Uh, we know that things are complicated. We, there are no simple issues to, here to deal with. They're all very complicated. And I pray that you'll uh, provide direction and guidance. We, as the scripture calls us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the safety of their residents. We pray that you might uh, work there in a great and mighty way, as you always do. And uh, we, we do pray for the innocent and those who are there ministering to the hearts and needs of others. And uh, as we close tonight, remember those on our church prayer list and even some who have had uh, special needs throughout the week, some, some, some of our families have buried loved ones, and we pray your blessings and strength for them. 
some of our families here have seen loved ones be in the hospital and have to go through some challenging situations. We pray your blessings on them and that you'll provide healing and grace through those times. Bless us as we dismiss and go into a great week. We pray for your glory as we give you the, the, the proper thanks for your many blessings on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless him.